Welcome to the Collaborators Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me and my guests as we reflect on what it looks like to collaborate with Jesus for the flourishing of nonviolent Christianity right now in all the difficulty and promise of our present moment. When we collaborate with Jesus, we join a movement for the building up of communities that heal rather than wound, that unite instead of divide, and that create the possibility for love and mercy to define who we are. On this podcast, you will meet people who are part of this movement, and we will find them inside and outside church walls because the spirit cannot be constrained by human boundaries. We'll talk about our fears, doubts, and beliefs, wounds, and nagging questions, because when we are collaborating with Jesus, he wants all of us along for the journey. In fact, we believe that coming from a place of doubt is the best starting place to discover what God is doing in our midst right now during these challenging yet strangely hopeful times. I'm your host, Suzanne Ross, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Vanessa Avery. Vanessa's academic background is in comparative religion and interfaith understanding. She is also a Jewish scholar who loves discussing her sacred texts, and we have had many wonderful conversations with her over the years at the Raven Foundation. Professionally, Vanessa has devoted herself to building understanding and nurturing community. Back in 1998, she began the first organization in the country focused on education and coaching in religious diversity in the workplace. Today, she is director of Sharing Sacred Spaces, an organization that builds local interreligious communities in cities around the world. Her work, no matter the context, is to open minds, reduce bias, and to create inclusive, diverse, and thriving cultures. The Collaborators Podcast is a production of the Raven Foundation. And this episode is brought to you by Girardian Reflections on the Lectionary, written and hosted by Raven Foundation friend and mentor, the Reverend Paul Nectarline. Paul offers pastors and seekers resources for understanding the Bible anew through the mimetic theory of René Girard. The site offers commentary on lectionary readings, online events, and information on how to bring Paul's discipleship seminars to your community. It's great to welcome you to the podcast, Vanessa. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Suzanne. It's really fun. And I know I have some big news to congratulate you on. You just became director of Sharing Sacred Spaces. So congratulations on that. Thank you again. (laughs) I appreciate Uh, it. How long have you been with them? About three years. About three years. So that's Mm -hmm. super. And I love the mission statement of the organization. We're going to talk a little bit about what you do so people can learn about it. But the mission statement is we foster friendship among people of different faiths to work together for the betterment of society. Excellent undertaking. I wish you all the best. Thank you. (laughs) And much success. Can you tell us about the work that Sharing Sacred Spaces does and especially how you got involved with it? Sure. Well, we do 
community building in a nutshell, which is always something a little bit intricate to explain, but community building, that's the structure in which we work. So what it looks like in practice is we go into different locations, we seek out stakeholders, we research the areas, and then we ultimately invite anywhere from six to 10 religious communities to work with us. We have a micro-community, as I call it, that we build, which has two representatives from each of the congregations. That micro-community goes through a series, a process, really, that involves dialogue training, exercises, it's all facilitated, and they plan together. So what they plan together is then a series of visits to each other's houses of worship or practice that are open then to the wider congregations and also the public. So we start with this core group and then we go through all of the different visits and we bring in the eight congregations more largely and the public through those, right? So that's community building. So we have a hub, but then it has branches out to various different networks in any given location. So how do you discern who's a good candidate for this micro-community? That's a good question. First is research. Where I tend to like to go is, you know, if you read studies, they're online. Hot cities within the country, for example, cities that have higher crime rates, that have more socioeconomic disparities. These tend to be cities where we could make more of a difference, but they also need to be diverse. And we look at the demographics and we try and at least have congregations that represent the demographics to some degree. Not all congregations are able to do this work. They don't have the bandwidth and they have other issues they need to focus on. Mm -hmm. But we at least try to invite those congregations in that can. And we're mostly successful. Well, they obviously must have a passion for building bridges for bridging divides, I guess you might say. What's interesting is that you say you don't hold typical interfaith events, that you're building mini movements, which I just love that phrase, especially right now in the climate we're in, where there's movements for social change all over the place, and they're big. (laughs) People are looking for big solutions. And so the thought of a mini movement feels very interesting. Well, we're many now. (laughs) 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 Who knows what we'll be? Yeah, right. But for now, I guess we're many because we are in three different locations. And we had done one in Chicago as well. We did our pilot in Chicago. And they're still operative, you know, doing events together, those congregations. So maybe I could say we're in four locations. But the movements still, I guess, feel somewhat... I guess that we're in control when we then have enough locations that people start, you know, initiating really on their Mm -hmm. own. I guess we can call ourselves a big movement. (laughs) But I think right now, because we have one city in New Haven that's going into the third year of the program, they're actually in what is phase three, as I call it, which is the civic action movement. The other two cities, one is just about halfway through their first year. And then Toronto just launched a few months ago. So they're just in the beginning of the movement, so to speak. I mean, obviously it's very local 
they're taking on local issues and local problems, it sounds like. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. then you're doing, I guess it sounds like a little bit of capacity building or training for people to know how to engage. So are people engaging to try and change policy? Are they working for political change? What kinds of changes are captivating the groups you're working with? Well, New Haven right now is in their project phase and we all met together and I've asked them about the issues and we go through a set of categories as well. People named a number of different things from helping people with their finances, through education, to going into schools and educating Mm. on religious difference. What they wound up with was establishing a protocol for responding to hate against religious groups or people. So this was shortly after the Pittsburgh shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of other things that happened. A mosque in North Haven, you know, right north of New Haven, was burned down intentionally by an arsonist. And so people really felt powerless about how to respond. What do people do? What's appropriate for the different religious communities? What is helpful and supportive? And these were the questions that came up. So we've spent the last about nine months going through our tour of religious communities to learn about their responses to hate, both from a spiritual point of view, but also from a very practical perspective. What do they do to respond? Mm -hmm. So we've been learning a lot. So that's what the New Haven community is working on. We just rolled it out because there have been four definitive hate crimes around the country, two actually in New Haven. And we weren't quite ready with our protocol, but the world forced us to bring it into being, at least in some kind of action. And so we did jointly write letters to each of those four communities. And so far we've gotten really just very moving responses, you know, of thanks. And so I feel like at least we're on the right track in what we're doing. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, it does help raise awareness. I know from I'm a Christian, you're Jewish, and the Christians sometimes can't quite understand the sense that you don't feel safe when you go to worship, especially after violent attacks, wherever they are in the country. My congregation shared space for a while with a Jewish congregation, Mm -hmm. and it really did help raise that awareness of the very different ways in which we're present in our public spaces. So I think that's so interesting that you're going to each other's public places of worship. How does that work? Like, how does that help facilitate understanding and especially friendship? Because friendship seems to be a sort of a key element that you're trying to foster. Yeah, that's a great question. I have a couple of responses, I guess, to that. The first is, why do we go to each other's spaces? Well, I like to always offer that opportunity because I think many people have fear of going into the worship space of another group. And so simply providing a structured program, we do, we have the same elements in every program. So when people join us, they know exactly what to expect. And they see a lot of the same people because it's the eight congregations together, the micro community is always there. So they see the same faces, they become comfortable in asking their questions. 
and they know that I'm there to facilitate. And <laughs> so far, nothing really has gone wrong, <laughs> but I'm there in case it does. You know, if anything comes up that's like very emotional or just a kind of deep hearted issue. So that's one reason, really, to offer the opportunity. But I also love this idea of spatial learning. What are the meanings in our spaces? You know, and you can look at it architecturally. So you look at symbols. Why is a mosque configured the way it is? Mm -hmm. And these go back, you know, to historic times as to why the buildings have developed the way that they have and what are the meanings in those spaces. And oftentimes there's something called faith clash. So when you go into a space, which is necessarily boundaried to express a religious point of view, your own faith might clash with the space that you're sitting in. So for example, you know, as a Jewish person going into a Catholic space, you take a seat in the nave. And nave, of course, comes from, it's a shipping word. It comes from the word ship, right? Naval. So when you're sitting in this ship, so to speak, you know, and the ship is meant to be pointing to front center, which is where the crucifix is placed. So you're on a ship moving toward a Christ, the Savior. That's the meaning in that space. So when you walk in there, you're immediately confronted really with, well, this is not my ship. <laughs> you know, how do I feel sitting here? Is it okay? And this causes a sense of self-reflection, but it also shows you the system of another faith tradition, and it creates an opportunity to discuss those feelings simply through entering another space. Mm -hmm. That's what I call a kind of spatial learning. But you mentioned friendship too. And, you know, if you look up friendship in the dictionary, it often has things like, someone you've known for a long time, someone you're fond of, perhaps someone you trust, mutual support, hopefully, <laughs> things like that, someone you enjoy being with. But there are different kinds of friendships too that you certainly may have a lot of commonalities, but there are friendships where there are perhaps very deep differences in values or belief systems that are so important to our growth and our maturation, there are often transformational kinds of relationships where those friendships, spending time with people, they'll not let your beliefs just lay where they are, but they'll cause you to think about why you think that way. And learning from their knowledge and wisdom often does shift how I myself believe, and I can reflect more deeply on who I am and what I believe through those friendships. So I think a missing element in a lot of friendships maybe is this friendship across difference where we could truly trust one another and support one another and ask all those questions and have those conversations that are otherwise perhaps not available. And so I say friendship because in our micro community, we certainly develop the kind of trust and mutual support that one would have in a friendship where we're able to ask those questions and, and we get comfortable with one another. And the longer we're with each other as a group, you know, the more we'll step on toes and realize, oh, I didn't even know that I had that thing. 
<laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> you get very comfortable. <laughs> well, it's true because as you're talking about just the physical space, we're often not conscious of the message that even our physical space is conveying to others. And it may not be as welcoming <laughs> to others as we want it to be or we imagine it to be. And not being afraid to have your beliefs questioned, I think, is a really probably an important thing that you put out front of saying, there's going to be a lot of questions. And a lot of times we hear questions as accusations, but that's why the friendship piece is necessary, I'm guessing. It has to come from a groundwork where you can trust one another that it's really a genuine question. Yeah, a genuine question and inside of a structure that we've put together, which I think is also key. We have ground rules that we abide by that everyone agrees upon in our very first meeting. So we'll always go back to those ground rules if we feel like something's gone amiss. Mm -hmm. So it's a safe structure. It's a safe space for our conversations and our gatherings. Yeah, that's great. I'm reminded of an interfaith dialogue we had with another Jewish congregation in our town, and our pastor was up there with their rabbi and fielding questions. And the members of the Jewish congregation were absolutely stunned when our pastor said, we don't blame you for the crucifixion. We don't. It's nothing to do with And they were just like blown away by that. And it makes me want to cry a little bit, but it's those kinds of obstacles to entering each other's space, really, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's physical or spiritual or whatever. I feel that your work is designed to overcome those sorts of things. So I'm going to thank you for doing it. And I do want to talk a little bit about how you got involved in this work and especially how your faith has informed how you've gotten into this space. Can Mm. you talk a little bit about your relationship with God right now? Where is it? Is there a a word or a phrase you can use to describe it? And then, of course, you can say much more about it. But (laughs) Well, I had to think about that, actually. Mm. You know, when you had first sent me that question, I read a lot of Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi in the UK, and... I remember a quote from something that he had written, which I think was from W.H. Auden. And the quote was, we must love one another or die. And I think we're capable. I think we can. I think love also has many facets. Love has to include things like justice. Love has to include things like the hard truths. (laughs) And I say truths because... We have different truths as a human race, but I think the context is always love for me. And I think that expresses my relationship for my faith the best way that I could put it. There's one other facet that's really important for me, and that's the Jewish notion of tikkun olam, which is repair of the world. It's a very central Jewish notion, but you know, in line with this, I think I've, as an adult at least, I've always asked, well, what can I do? What can Vanessa do, you know, to make a difference and make an impact? And I think that's always what I've really wanted to do. I didn't really know it perhaps until a little bit later in my life, but 
I've always consistently tried to, and my faith I think is wrapped up in listening to the world and trying to figure out what I need to do given who I am and my experience. Mm. So it's very action oriented, if you will. Yeah. Is that kind of what drove you into this work, I'm guessing? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, back in 1998, I graduated with my third degree in religious studies and I was considering a PhD, but I wasn't going into one just yet. And I was listening to the world and there was a lot of cultural diversity training going on at that point in companies around the country. And I was curious about it, really. So I interviewed a number of cultural trainers. I asked them about how they conduct trainings on religious diversity. And they all said, we don't. (laughs) So I said, well, I will. And so I started my company in 98 to focus on religious diversity. I did that for many, many years. And I see that the world really was listening to my response. And then more recently, I feel like what we're listening to is this need to come together, not through diversity training or the traditional methods, but in a communal effort, which is why I call them micro-communities or mini-movements, a place of gathering, uh, you know, where I don't want to say we love one another, you know, it's cheesy, (laughs) but where we really come to appreciate one another in a deeper way. We're not just a working cohort, you know, and we're not just a political action group. It's warm when we get together. We practice radical hospitality, welcoming all people to our events. Even virtually, we try. It's harder. We don't have the great food that we normally do either, but... You know, that to me is very, very important. Putting what I hear, which is this very desperate polarization to just get people together and have exercises where people can disagree and we figure it out, (laughs) you know, we we figure it out. If we can figure it out in our little community, then we could be a model to help others try and figure it out. That's what I think we need. Yeah, it is always a sad thing. I know I was part of a congregation that couldn't figure it out, and we split apart. This is what Protestants do. We get mad mm-hmm. at each other, and then we split, and we form another church. You know, I was raised Catholic. We don't do that. When you're Catholic, you sit there, and you wait for things to change. <laughs> and the Protestants, just, boom, you know, split apart. So it's always been very interesting to me, and a source of sadness that when we can't, find a way to get along within our church family. Mm. It's very depressing. But I guess sometimes, you know, it's not always going to work. I wanted to ask you, it's just coming up in my mind of what are some of the misconceptions, if you will, that Christians have about Jewish people and how they practice their faith? I just remember being in one of these interfaith dialogues and asking the Jewish people in the group, what do you believe? And they're like, I don't know. What do you mean? What do I believe? Mm. And we were shocked. Like, well, we have our statement of faith, you know, and we'll, if you want to become a member, we tell you what you have to believe. And the language didn't resonate. And I'm wondering if that is something that's common or are there other things where there's really language barriers or you know, cultural barriers to understanding. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. We're really a religion of practice and our different, you know, if you want to call them denominations, our branches are 
because we believe in different levels of practice, not because we necessarily believe different things. So yeah, you could be an agnostic and be a Jew. You could be an atheist and be a Jew. It's actually very interesting. It's just not something that we're very concerned with. You could doubt, but even doubting is thinking about God. So there's always something of a relationship there. (laughs) You know, it's very much a, you know, I can't really call it an ethnicity, but it's very cultural in terms of how we think through things. And God is one thing we think about whether we believe is a different matter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You can argue about God and argue with God, but, well, that's what I love. One of the things I learned in dialogue with Jewish people is the way the, I think it's the Talmud is set up. It's the Talmud where there's different rabbinic arguments on each page, Mm -hmm. different interpretations on each page, and they all sit there. They can disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. But they're all on the same page. And that's something so delightful to me that you don't need to agree. As long as you're agreeing, this is important to talk about. <laughs> I think exactly it's kind of what I come away with. These are the important questions. Whether we're going to find the ultimate answer is really not important and really yes. not possible in one lifetime anyway. So That's right. And I think that's a beautiful thing about my religion, you know, is the fact that we could take a situation, it might be more like a debate than a dialogue, really, but we could really talk about it. And, you know, how the response to that situation will change, given the context as well. So these are things that, you know, are really important to think about, and how your ethics can change given a context. There are a lot of different nuances. So it's not black and white by any degree. And I think that leads into another stereotype often of Judaism is that people will call it legalistic, you know, focused Mm -hmm. on these minutiae. And that's not really what we're doing. It's always trying to get to what really is the right thing to do? Because that's an important question. It's the right thing to do. You know, this is my life. It affects other lives. If you believe in the soul, some just do, some don't. But this is my soul and this will affect me moving forward. So these are really important, I think, questions that I find a beauty in. And I think that is in other traditions as well, just not so much at the forefront. Mm -hmm. No, but it's a wonderful thing to bring into dialogue with speaking as a Christian, with our Christian attitudes towards grasping sort of onto ultimate truths, like we have to know what the truth is. Having that to help us relax a little bit is kind of a cool thing. I wanted to talk with you a little bit too about what you were saying as you bring different congregations together, you're bringing different socioeconomic status together, at different ethnic groups are coming together. So it's not just religious differences in the room. Right? No. It's all these other differences that are in the room. And so what kind of dimension does that add to the community building? I think an essential one. I'm not sure that I am so excited about doing this if it's not addressing those other issues. You know, it's actually even more prominent these days. And I hate to say it adds a dimension of complexity, but it does. Doing things over technology. Because not everyone does have the technology 
to continue virtually. And I think we're still struggling with that question of how do we support the congregations in our groups that can't do the video site visit, for example. So we're still working that out, but it raises, again, it's like being in a different space. <laughs> it's, wait a minute, they're one of us and we need to help them figure it out. And so these dimensions are critically important to, I think, us still learning about others and not just in terms of beliefs, but practical realities, you know. Going to some of our churches too and learning about African-American spirituality inside a Congregational United Church of Christ. You know, it's just enlightening to be inside some of these churches that have historical roots in being activists for civil rights that have been around for a long time, that have had incredible leaders in the civil rights movement as part of their congregation, and learning about how experiences of oppression have affected their spirituality just adds a layer to what we're already doing that I think is very important because religion is not multidimensional. You can go to a UCC church that's predominantly white, for lack of a better word, and you'll hear about certain things, but then you'll go to a UCC church that's predominantly black, you'll hear about very different things. So when we're exploring each other's religion, I think the racial or economic or ethnic dimension is so important to understanding that none of us are monolithic. You know, none of our traditions are monolithic and they take so many different forms that we get to learn more than we would otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think you're right because we don't come to God in a vacuum. We bring our experiences and who we are and our history of our people with us. And it's how we approach the scriptures too. When you read scripture from the side of the marginalized, you hear different things in scripture, don't you? Then if you're coming at it from the powers and principalities, don't maybe always hear those voices That's right. uh, in, in the text. Yeah, that's been very fascinating for me to have my eyes awakened to how differently these stories that we hold dear and holy and sacred are heard in different contexts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) Do you read sacred texts together? No, that's not something we've done. Hmm. And a particular reason why? Yeah. I think it would be great. Maybe we'll do that next year. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, we've read portions of sacred texts at our site visits as a dialogue activity. And we've talked about them mm-hmm. in an interfaith context. But for our, our micro group, no, we're very busy actually planning. <laughs> we're working on our project now and we're trying to figure, figure that out. And, you know, we're actually very busy in our meetings. And then there are the actual exercises that I facilitate for them that try and move people to a certain space. It opens up conversations to get a little bit deeper. It's an exercise so people can feel safe in an exercise, but we explore things like stereotypes and bias and oh, yeah. you know, public expressions of religion and we do various things like that. So it would be great to study sacred texts in one way. I know there are groups that do that. 
but it's really not something that we do. No, oh, interesting. What are your reaction to the movements for social justice that are happening right now in the U.S.? I mean, we've been struggling now with the legacy of slavery and racism, and I'm wondering, as you're watching what's happening in different cities and and the response of different mayors and, and the federal government as well, what do you see going on there? What do you see that's going right? What could we be doing better? That's a big question. (laughs) I know, know. but I need answers, Vanessa. (laughs) Yeah. I can only speak personally. So first, I have no idea if what I read in the media is really what's going on. If I were in Portland, I think I would have more to say, for example, but I'm not. And so I read the media with skepticism. I try and read varied sources, but I just don't know. In general... I think we need change. We've needed change for a long time. I think protesting is one of the historic ways we've always achieved change. So we need to do that. I can talk about my work and what can we learn from what we've done to apply to this other kind of situation. We've had a lot of insights, certainly, that I've written about a little bit on our website. But I think this is exactly why New Haven chose its project. How do we respond when people experience hate? Because people feel powerless. And I know from a white person's perspective, what can I do? If it's not happening to me, what can I do for you? And I think a lot of White people have been asking that, really. What can I do for you? And there are varied answers, I think, on that. But at the end of the day, the one I've heard the most is act. Don't just read books. Don't just talk about it. Don't just send your good wishes, but act. How do we act? That's what we're working on. (laughs) Right? So if a Catholic church has been set aflame or a Jewish community center has been vandalized with graffiti... We need to act, and we're working on the protocol. What we've done to this point is sent letters of solidarity, but it comes from our eight religious traditions. You know, the Buddhists stand with you and affirm who you are, and the Hindus stand with you, affirm who you are, and the Catholics do, and the Jews do, and the Muslims do. And this is incredibly powerful, I think, to at least be the recipient of an action that is hopeful. Mm -hmm. We plan to do more, but I think figuring out what those actions are. If you go to a protest, fantastic. In a pandemic, it makes some people unable to do that, Mm -hmm. but you can't. Otherwise, you know, what are those actions? Letters to your representatives, you know, letters can be very powerful, but Mm -hmm. there are other things too. I think there've been a lot of companies stepping up, acting and doing things to try and combat any systemic racism. Uh, A lot of things are being done. Well, and I think it's hard because it is a big problem and it's been going on for so long. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of impatience, rightly so, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right that part of the biggest problem I think I've heard from Black Americans is why don't you believe us when we're telling you this is a problem? (laughs) And just to acknowledge we're hearing you, 
Mm-hmm. We're hearing you. And to me, that's been such a wonderful thing that seen and the protests have been so diverse um, to see that coming across. We're in it with you, which is a whole different message, I think, than we've been sending for yeah. a bit, unfortunately. Yeah, working with the religious groups and watching what's going on there, which is also a historical problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm not talking for Jewish folks. I'm talking, I see the churches being set aflame as well and vandalized. And I've seen the mosques uh, the same. So, you know, I think all standing together, as many people that will do it, Mm -hmm. we have to stand in solidarity. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly, I think, the point is if you commit to doing that and then I think action flows from there, whatever we can do. And there's resources within, I'm intrigued by eight religious traditions or however many you said you have, but there are, I'm guessing within each of those traditions, there's resources that call the adherence of that tradition into solidarity, into recognizing, how, well, trying to find some non-Christian way of saying, you know, God made us all and you know, we're all children of God. But I think that it's that idea present in a lot of traditions, I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. At the end of the first phase of our program, we actually have a public ceremony where all the representatives come up and sign an actual solidarity pledge. And they each come up to the podium and they state why from their religion they will stand in solidarity with the others. So you're absolutely right. They all have it within them. And actually saying it is really where that power is and then signing a commitment to it. Mm. And it's so amazing because then in our subsequent meetings, when we work on our project, at various times, one in the group will say, well, we committed to stand in solidarity. So now what can we do? (laughs) (laughs) So how powerful a micro-community is that? Mm. You know, I desperately, and I'm eager about this, but I'm desperately eager, if you will, to apply this model as we're working on to other contexts, particularly Mm. the school system, where we can build micro-communities between schools and focus more, because we won't focus on religion with schools, but we'll focus on other diversity aspects to build the same kinds of communities that will commit to their solidarity and then sit in the meetings and say, so we committed to this. (laughs) What are we going to do now? Oh, yeah. Right? So if we could get 80 micro communities, I think we would change the fabric of our country. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. And if people want to be part of what you're doing with sharing sacred spaces, how do they reach you? Can people volunteer to say, come to my town? Absolutely. Yeah, I would love that. We should talk. The best way is through our website, www.sharingsacredspaces.org. Our contact info is there. And you can subscribe to our newsletter or register for our events. Oh, I love it. Yeah. We're wrapping up. Do you have a story that you can share about an impact that your work has had a particular community that saw some change happen? Yeah, I think since I wasn't involved with the Chicago pilot, I'll keep talking more about New Haven. 
But the letter that we sent in response to the vandalizing of the Jewish Community Center, we did receive two letters in response. One from a woman who, you know, I really cried when I read it because, you know, she talked about how she grew up in New Haven. And at that time, she was very comfortable being, you know, a religious Jew publicly, but that it's no longer comfortable and it hasn't been for some time. So perhaps objects that you would wear, you don't wear anymore. And she expressed in her experience how this has been happening. And her letter was just so moving that she couldn't believe there's this group in New Haven of eight religions that was saying, you belong here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really very powerful. Mm-hmm. So I think it looks like we'll be working together with that organization moving forward, which is really a fantastic thing. It is fantastic. Thank you, Vanessa. We underestimate how important it is to hear that we belong. Yeah. We belong here. Thank you. That's we belong a here. <laughs> we do here on this planet all together. We've got to make it work together. So thank you for those stories and for sharing your work with us and really appreciate it and wish you all the best. Thank you. Likewise, it's always great to be with you. Thanks, Vanessa. Living with uncertainty has never been my strong suit. I want to know that I'm right, that I'm doing the right thing, believing the right thing. I even need to be sure I'm loading the dishwasher the right way and that my husband is too. When I have to redo his so-called help, I try to do it without resentment because I have learned that it's my issue and not his. But I was raised to be good and being good meant being right. I needed to hear Vanessa say that being Jewish is not about right belief or belief at all. It's about doing things in the world to make it better and that you figure that out as you go. You figure it out trying to do things with other people who are trying to. When I think I know who is getting God right or God forbid that I am, I am in dangerous territory because certainty that we are on God's side slams the door on relationships. Vanessa said that she tries to practice radical hospitality. Slamming doors is not radical, nor is redoing the dishwasher. That's what fear of being wrong leads to. Radical hospitality is entering into a space where you won't be sure what the right thing to do is. Do I kneel or stand? Do I walk over there or sit here? Daring to feel that you don't belong is the way to open the door to a new community to belong to. Vanessa reassured me that finding community does not depend on my being right, but on being unashamed of how little I know of where we're going or how to get there. As I wrote that, I felt my body relax and my spirit brighten. Maybe uncertainty has its advantages. Thanks so much for listening to The Collaborators Podcast, a production of the Raven Foundation where we offer a welcoming community to anyone disillusioned with organized religion, but who has not given up on God or a world at peace. And many thanks to this episode's sponsor, Girardian Reflections on the Lectionary, where pastors and seekers can find resources for understanding the Bible anew through the mimetic theory of René Girard. And please sign up for the Olive Branch, Raven's weekly newsletter, to keep up with our blog posts, events, and video and podcast series. 
you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your collaboration as we work for the flourishing of nonviolent Christianity as a peaceful presence in a world of rivalry.